In this episode of the Guru Viking podcast, I talk with Glenn Mullen, returning for a third time. And let me tell you, this one is a goldmine. Glenn is a Tibetologist, translator, and Tantric Buddhist meditation teacher who studied for many years in Dharamsala with the Dalai Lama's own gurus. Continuing on from our previous discussions on the six yogas of Naropa, we move beyond Tummo into the illusory body yogas, including the illusory nature of appearances, the yogas of dream and sleep, and bardo yoga. Glenn lays out how to practice Tantra in all aspects of life, and explores the difference between the application of emptiness in Sutra and Tantra. We also discuss the symptoms of imbalances between the inner male and female energies and how to remedy them, as well as the difference between tantric dream yoga and modern lucid dreaming techniques. So without further ado, Glenn Mullen. So Glenn, thank you very much for coming back on the podcast. My joy, my honor, my pleasure. So over the last two interviews we've done, a theme that has emerged has been the six yogas of Naropa, a specialty of yours in terms of your teaching and writing. And we've gone through much of the first chunk of that material. Last interview, we finished the Tumo with a discussion about Kama Mudra. And regarding the rest of the six yogas, you write, inner heat is the foundation, illusory body and clear light, the main body of the path, consciousness transference, and or forceful projection, branches of the path, to be applied in times of emergency or in one's twilight years, in order to bypass the bardo entirely. And finally, if none of this works, and one finds oneself entering death's gates, there is the doctrine of bardo yoga. So I'd like to move on in this interview to explore the main body of the path, starting with the illusory body yoga. And reading here from your translation of Tsongkhapa's practice manual on the six yogas of Naropa, we find that a certain degree of success in Tumo practice is a prerequisite. Tsongkhapa states, as long as the vital energies have not been drawn into the central channel, one will not be able to generate the samadhi of the threefold experience of appearance, proximity, and proximate attainment that precedes the accomplishment of mind refinement. And it's from the state of vital energies and consciousness that have generated the complete signs of the wisdom awareness of final mind refinement that the qualified illusory body can be engaged. Prior to the stage wherein the qualified illusory body can be made manifest, one must give rise to the five signs. So linking on from our discussion on Tuma, which we rounded out last time, what are the five signs? And can you give a kind of roadmap of the territory that a practitioner who's engaging in Tumo is likely to traverse in actualizing them? You know, uh, I remember when I was first in Dharamsala uh, studying Tibetan Dharma under Dalai Lama's people, when the Dalai Lama would give a public teaching on any aspect of Dharma, most Tibetans wouldn't follow what was said. And one reason for that is uh, Buddhism tends to have something of a hybrid language, much, say, like psychoneuroimmunology does in the West or uh, brain science or many kinds of disciplines. So it has its own language. So the, the parts you just read about the three isolations and the four, the four appearances and so on and so forth, these are kind of all very precise technical terms that have very precise meanings. And uh, one begins to be introduced to these from the very beginning of time. 
tantric practice, which means uh, in generation stage practice or mandala practice. So generally in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, all Tibetan Buddhism, we say is a combination of the three yanas, Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana. And Hinayana there just meaning learning to live an ethical life, developing a sort of more samadhi or concentrated mind or, or ability to maintain a focused mind. And thirdly, the exploration of the nature of the self, uh, anatma in Sanskrit, the, uh, the non-self, you could say. And combined with the Mahayana aspect of the developing universal love and compassion, which I like to call learning to love everyone and everything. <laughs> and based on that, one gets tantric initiation. Based on tantric initiation, one is allowed to practice tantra or is authorized. Therefore, initiation often translated as empowered. One is empowered or authorized to practice. And in highest yoga tantra, that generation stage practice or mandala practice or mantra practice, whatever first stage practice, all those names are used, one basically does three central focuses. And as you begin the meditation, you, you imagine that the whole world is dissolving into light, into the living beings, the living beings into light, into you, you from the head and head down and feet up into light, into a mantric syllable at your heart, which represents, you could say, the primordial nature of the soul, your Buddha nature or your the very essence of that aspect of the soul which travels from day to day, week to week, month to month, and lifetime to lifetime. And as one goes into that state with each of the dissolutions, one imagines elemental dissolutions. So with the outer, it's very simple. When it comes to the subtle energies, then the subtle earth and energy dissolves. And there's a, if you're going to sleep at night or if you're dying, when the earth elements dissolves, that's basically the energy which gives you the ability to move your various limbs and so forth. So as you're going to sleep at night, when that energy dissolves, you have the kind of a loss of the use of your limbs and your arms and legs become heavy and so forth. And at the time of death, you can no longer move your limbs. And similarly, next with them, when the water element dissolves and the heart slows as you're going to sleep or the heart stops as you're dying. And the outer sign of the earth is often said to be the mirage, as like seeing a mirage in a desert. The whole world sort of takes on this mirage, looking across the heat of the desert kind of feeling as water dissolves. Kind of like a smoky, smoky, the mind becomes a little bit like a smoky blues bar in the 1970s. <laughs> and then as the uh, water element, uh, the fire element dissolves, and as often said, the heat on the body at the time of sleep cools, and so then you start falling off to sleep and you feel a little cool. At the time of death, your body starts to cool from head down and feet up. And uh, then uh, as the air element dissolves, then the breathing at the time of going to sleep kind of makes a very deep out breath and your breathing pattern changes radically. At the time of death, you take your last breath and let the breath out. 
So thus uh, referring to the five signs there being the dissolution of the four elements into the fifth element, which is mind. And mind element, often they talk about three appearances leading up to the fourth clear light mind. <laughs> and that really means, firstly, on a very subtle level, now your body, your coarse body is no longer working, but in the tantric understanding, Buddhist understanding from our assimilate from our Abhidharma, the soul or the spirit is still resting within the body, and in fact, it's come to the heart chakra. And so often we say the white element descends from the crown chakra and falls to the heart, and there is a there's a white moon-like flash of light. So this is called the first appearance or nangwa. Nangwa here, also you could say shining or radiance. Nangwa in another way means to appear, but it also means a kind of a radiance. And at that time, on a very subtle level, your male instinct of aggression and sort of conquering the world and dominating the world and so forth, but this, this, the energy supporting that male aspect of consciousness dissolves. Sometimes we say that 40, uh, that, that, that energy, the energy that supports the 40 conceptual mind states of aggression <laughs> dissolve. And so those conceptual mind states no longer are, are, have the power to arise. So there's no anger, there's no irritation, there's no fear and so forth. Secondly, the red element, the female element, rises from the navel chakra to the heart. And the 33, uh, the energies or the drops and energies supporting the 33 conceptual mindsets. Conceptual here meaning sort of viewing, experiencing the world in a dualistic manner. In other words, this is different than that. Not seeing the big picture, but seeing the trees, not the forest. You could say it means something like that. Those 33 dissolve. And there's a flash or an experience of a red sunset-like radiance. So that's referring to the second radiance. And thirdly, the white and the red fall together at the heart and form a little house at the heart. So this is called the indestructible drop at the heart. And later in higher yoga, when we do Chandali or Kundalini yoga, Tumal, illusory body and clear light yoga, we try to simulate that in the meditation state by means of actually manipulating the, you know, the drops and energies of the body. But here on first stage Tantra, we're just sort of visualizing that it occurs. And uh, then as we, as, as we bring the drops together into the heart, then the seven drops or the seven energies supporting the conceptual mindset of a separate self dissolve. And so there's kind of a black swooning, kind of a black hole of space kind of experience. And for most people, consciousness then has become very subtle. So they actually lose consciousness and forget where they are and what they are and what they're doing. And at the time of sleep, often you lose it at that point and you don't wake up till you wake up in a dream. <clears throat> or at the time of death, you don't wake up until you wake up in the bardo in the hereafter. But in yoga, if you train in tantric yoga, the idea is to 
retain conscious presence, even in that very subtle state of consciousness, when essentially you, you reverted to the status of a one-cell being, sort of like, I don't know, uh, a bacteria <laughs> or a single cell or something like that. It's a single cell being. And to maintain consciousness at that at that juncture or in that on that platform, you could say is the real point of tantric practice. Now that that's the real challenge to qualifying as a tantric practitioner, and it's really the point at which one is demarked as a qualified tantric practitioner. If one can hold awareness in that state of the single-celled being, the mishigbe tigli at the heart, the undying drop, indestructible drop at the heart, then when one comes out of it, one comes out in what is known as the fourth clear light mind, fourth in the sense that it's the fourth radiance. And at that time, the blissful, radiant, beyond duality awareness, consciousness, arises, otherwise known as a mother clear light mind arises. We could call this perhaps something like the deepest, most eternal radiance of the soul, if we were to use that term, soul. And so in first stage yoga, we do that at the beginning of every sadhana and at the beginning of every sadhana. And then we imagine that when that clear light mind arises, we blend it with dharmakaya. So this this state of the soul, this state of awareness is very similar to the to Buddha mind or the mind of an enlightened being. And so the key to achieving enlightenment is to be able to access that primordial, blissful, non-duality presence of the mother clear light mind. If one can do that, blending with Dharmakaya, one achieves enlightenment at that moment. So during the daytime in Tumo practice, as we discussed in earlier sessions, one tries to generate those kind of energy uh, dissolutions, if you will, or withdrawals, and bringing the, uh, all of the energies and drops into the central channel, and building the house of 144,000 male and 144,000 female drops, building that house at the center of the heart chakra, and bringing the whole universe into complete stillness at that place. So that sort of said there, for that reason, Dalai Lama once said, I practice my death four times a day, meaning four times a day he does a highest yoga tantra <laughs> sadhana with that dissolution of the elements going into the clear light of the moment of death. In Tibetan, it's known as uh, uh, Chika Chuku Lamkir, something like that, taking the clear light of the moment of the clear light of death, uh, blending with Dharmakaya. Then if one comes into the sadhana, as one goes on, and this is on first stage tantra, we come out of that clear light in various ways. And just like a Buddha after achieving enlightenment achieves dharmakaya mind, the Buddha coming out of clear light thinks, oh, I should benefit all beings. I've had been practicing love, compassion for all beings. And oh, yes, what about all those other beings? I'm, 
feeling really good sitting here in my Buddhahood. <laughs> and so first emanating out of Dharmakaya in kind of Sambhogakaya or a higher subtle form. You could say that's a little bit in like in Christianity that if we were to make it these things sort of the Christian trinity, then Dharmakaya is like God the Father. Coming out of that as uh, Sambhogakaya is a little bit like God the Holy Ghost, you could say. Here it really means coming out in a very higher form that's only perceivable by beings on very high states. Literally in Buddhism we use the word Arya or Pakka. Only, only can be perceived by those who have some meditational experience of infinity or shunya or emptiness. That's done in different ways in different tantras. In Yamantaka we just become a blue bar out of the infinity of the clear like mind we appear as a blue bar which goes from the bottom of the universe to the top of the universe and there's nothing else just the blue bar in uh, chakra zambara hey Vajra, these tantras we come out of it as uh, as a tigle as just a nada and a tigle a drop of a white tinged with red in other words primordial male quality of aggression and primordial female quality of passion, those two. And it uh, looks very wonderful being a tigle, just a drop of white with a tinge of red, but only aryas and those in very high spiritual states can, can experience, or being a blue bar. Nobody knows this is your blue bar, <laughs> except for aryas. <laughs> and so you think, oh, yeah, so what about all the riffraff and whatever view of the world they're also out there and uh, they're also probably in need of more of an inspiration even than the Aryas so this whole thing sort of transforms and you re-emerge either as Yamataka or Chakra Sambhara Hevajra one of the highest yoga tantra mandala buddha forms is so-called yidam forms and in that way uh, are perceivable by all living beings of the six realms so the whole practice uh, of the sadhana, these three are considered to be the essence of the practice. The linking with the clear light nature of mind, which is similar to the clear light nature of the moment of going to sleep and the moment of death. Coming out of that with the Sambhogakaya, which in, highest, in second stage tantra, then during ordinary life becomes dream yoga or the dream body. is similar to the dream yoga or dream body. And at the time of death, like Bardo Yoga, Bardo Body. And then the Namunakaya is like at the end of sleeping all night, you get up the next morning and go about your daily business. Or after the, going through the Bardo experience, if you haven't achieved enlightenment, finding an appropriate place of rebirth and of taking rebirth. So the first stage Tantra is all a kind of, a, you could say, a, looking at how we are always uh, in connection with the three kayas or the three dimensions of our own enlightenment and of the enlightenment of all living beings. At the same time, we are always vacillating between our uh, clear light of the moment of death mind and uh, Samboga kaya of dreams and bardo and the nirmana kaya of taking rebirth. In terms of daily practice with Generation Stage Yoga, I think then when we come out of that kind of practice and we 
get up and go about our own life. We're supposed to try to blend these three. We're always have a, supposed to have a sense that whatever I do, I'm coming from in, this inner place of vast, un, unhindered, unobstructed radiance, this uh, uh, free-flowing bliss and joy. And thirdly, with a total sense of the non-duality of all things, the uh, interconnectedness of all things in the universe. So in that way, uh, we, we basically try to live at the basis of already enlightenment, you could say. In the meditation sessions on first stage, after that, then we would do the mantras and uh, sort of project doing very creative energy within the world, within our Namanakaya form of Yamantaka, Chakra Sambara, whatever that highest yoga tantra form is. And later, second stage yoga, we do it as Tumo Kundalini, and as you read in the passage, illusory body and clear light yogas. That's fascinating. Two questions come to mind. But first of all, moving from the visualization aspect to the visceral experience aspect. At some point, I could imagine that the two, those two modes may, to some degree, conflict if the visceral experiential aspect is uh, developing. Then one has the visualization uh, aspect of the training, which one had done before, uh, which may or may not closely resemble the visceral experience, which one hasn't had yet. Um, at some point, how, how does that handover happen? practically speaking. And secondly, if the seven uh, drops that give the sense of the sense of the separate self are dissolved during that process, what is the experience of uh, initiating the further maneuvers that are happening in the sequence? If one sense of self is gone, from where experientially, I'm not trying to be philosophically tricky, where does the impetus to perform the remaining maneuvers come from. Right. So the essence of tantric practice is that one uh, connects ordinary experience to universal experience. One becomes one's own teacher, so to speak. So if we were just to sit down and do that as a kind of stretch yoga or power breath yoga or something physical, I don't think it could be accomplished. Uh, the power of tantric practice comes from noticing how all of this happens very naturally all the time as part of a process. So, for instance, uh, we train in this generation stage yoga, which, as you say, is a visualization. And generation stage acting in Tibetan Kirim is the Migpa Kipa. One generates it as a visualization, much in the way, say, a diver going off a diving board tends to visualize a maneuver he's going to make. He doesn't just run out, hit the board, and halfway up in the air say, oh, I think I'll do this kind of dive, that kind of dive. He goes through it uh, as a kind of a visualization before doing it. So generation stage is a bit like that. And, of course, it can only be taken to a deeper level by the so-called completion stage, or Sogrim, the second stage Tantra, where you do power breathing and physical exercises, 
and you take it a step further. But as I was saying, uh, the, the important thing is noticing how it happens naturally all the time. And the first way to notice is that in the manner in which lovemaking, when one makes love, the mind naturally goes through these sort of stages of unfoldment, you could say. The drops naturally move, the energies naturally move of their own accord, leading up to, uh, to orgasm. And in the moment of orgasm, which the French call la petite mort, the little death, <laughs> that's because at the time of death, again, the whole brain tends to shut down. I was watching a psycho a, a neurological study of sexuality uh, uh, a couple of years ago and I was pointing out and pointed out that at the time of sexual orgasm the brain almost completely shuts down and so you could say a to it becomes a total experience beyond the sense of self there this happens to us naturally in a kind in the sexual experience uh, and secondly when we go to sleep every night, we naturally experience, it just happens by itself, whether we like it or not. In order to get to sleep, those so-called eight stages of dissolution of the elements going into mind and the three radiance of mind going into clear light of the moment of sleep or the mo often the moment before sleep, these occur very naturally. So some uh, levels of training emphasize sleep and dream yoga. In other words, just lay down and go to sleep and just do it very mindfully, but following the processes the way they were done in the generation stage yoga. And it's often said that in order to do successful dream yoga, you have to have had some kind of preparation by means of de developing familiarity with these eight levels of consciousness or consciousnesses supported by increasingly eight levels of consciousness which are increasingly subtle because of the energies supporting them having been pulled out, it's sort of like standing on eight carpets and one by one the carpets are pulled out from under you and it, your support becomes subtler and subtler and as a result the quality of mind itself becomes more subtle. And uh, this becomes a key to learning how it works, because every night, and if you take an afternoon siesta, <laughs> the same thing happens. You go through those and you come up to the stage, the so-called seventh stage, where the seven energies supporting the sense of an independent or separate I dissolve. Unless that happens, you're not going to hit the eighth stage, which is the clear light of the moment before sleep. If that happens, you're not going to go to sleep. <laughs> I think a lot of people who suffer from insomnia, they get stuck on one or another of those stages of dissolution. And uh, uh, the real nature of Tantra is that everything that ha happens in the natural life has a significance in the enlightenment life. If you take it one way, it's samsara. If you take it another way, it's nirvana. So by observing the, the way tantric yoga during meditation session operates, the way the energy fluctuations occur when you do tumo or chandali yoga, kundalini yoga, noticing the fluctuation of those energies, 
then when you go to sleep, you'll notice something like that. And you go, oh, yeah, that's what it was. That's what it is. And I think uh, you really learn to go from no I in a sense of total uh, un If there's no I, there's not nothing to apprehend. There's no apprehender. Therefore, there's no apprehension. There's just a state of infinite sort of dark radiance without any form. If you have any form or light, immediately you tend to have a sense of I and something, unless you can do it on the basis of an even more subtle mind. In other words, a mind in which the seven energies supporting a sense of self have been dissolved. Now, when you go to sleep at night, eventually those, those seven energies dissolve. You may be there in that state of infinite radiance or dark radiance, but eventually you're going to fall out of it. A car driving by will honk and you'll notice something, or just by your bodily energies or your breathing or something will push you out of that and you'll come out into the clear light mind. And it's said that if you can do that tantrically, then holding that at the time of going to sleep at night or holding it for a few moments is better than the whole day of meditating in ordinary vipassana or satipatthana or dzogchen or mahamudra, that clear light experience at the moment like that is the most subtle, eternal nature of mind and is the most powerful transformative tool. So yogis and yoginis uh, throughout time, and certainly from the time of Buddha within the Buddhist lineages, have seen that as a very important part of the enlightenment process. So, for instance, when I go to sleep at night, uh, I try to just notice as the energies dissolve and my arms become heavier and then my <laughs> uh, heart slows down a bit and then the body temperature cools and then my breathing transforms. And I try to just stay aware as the thought that Breathing becomes very smooth and the energies start moving and internal, the internal energies start moving and follow it through. And really developing that as the developing fluency in that process, observing that process, following that process. And our, as Marpa used the word sepa, which means blending. In other words, blending the yogas that you've learned during the day or the meditative techniques you've learned during the day blending those in with the natural experience as they arise at night, that really becomes the key to success. So you're moving there into a discussion of some of the aspects of what's called illusory body yoga. Illusory body yoga? You could really say that from the beginning, all tantric meditation uh, is looking at two sides of our life. And the one is the sense of physicality, and the other is the sense of radiance. So you could say there's two sides to it, the knower and the known, the perceiver and the perceived, the mind and universe, mind and world. You could say mind and body. So Julu there, they talk about it on various levels. Levels, but in Tantra, we they don't use the two the expression two levels of reality like we do in Sutra. So in two Sutra, we say if you experience a flower, there's two things happening about that flower. 
One is the way the, the lotus flower or rose or whatever appears to your mind as something solid, solid and something definable. And the other is the emptiness of separateness or emptiness of duality or emptiness of separate nature. The more you look inside the flower, the less flower you find. It's not in the cells and it's not in the roots and it's on and so forth. That is essentially the whole universe manifest in a particular way, perceived by you and labeled by you according to your instincts and your perceptual apparatus and so forth. So we call these the two levels of reality. Reality, the way it appears to the mind of a person or a living being. And secondly, if you look beyond that, the beyond appearance nature, so the way that flower appears to all living beings will be quite different. The way it appears to an elephant or a bird or an insect or a god or a ghost or a hell being or whatever. <laughs> it will appear very differently. And uh, this is because of the flower itself, the way we experience it is a is an illusory appearance. It's, it's uh, it's transformed, the way we experience is transformed and distorted by our particular way of seeing, our particular genetic makeup, our perceptual apparatus and so forth. So in um, Tibetan it's called Kunsobdempa, the illusory nature of reality, <coughs> or sometimes illusory nature of reality. And some people translate it as relative, but the word in Tibetan Kunsob means it's always if there's something illusory or false about it. So Jeffrey Hopkins, one of the early translators of Majamaka, early in terms of translating from the Tibetan, tra translated as truth for a deceiver. <laughs> Who is a deceiver? Whoever perceives it is being deceived by the manner in which he perceives it. So if I perceive a flower and it seems like the flower is indeed separate from the mountain and separate from the sun and the stars and so on, I'm deceiving myself. I'm, I'm in distorting the actual reality which is there. In other words, the flower is not really separate from the sun. The sun pervades the flower. and It's not separate from the oceans. The oceans pervade the flower and so on and so forth. So in the sutra we use that. And for the ultimate level of reality, often they say, Rangshingi uh, Tamba. Empty, empty of self nature, Rangingo empty of existing from its own side, and so on and so forth. You know, there so sort of people casually translate these as uh, conventional level of reality and ultimate level of reality. Neither of those translations is very accurate, but it's one of those subjects which, whatever you say in English, won't really capture the meaning. And if you follow the Tibetan or Sanskrit, it might not work so well in English to give you a clue even what it's possibly talking about. Like in English, if we say illusory body, you walk into the bar nearest you or the uh, you know, luncheon diner nearest you and say, excuse me, what do you know about illusory body? What's your definition of illusory body? <laughs> that, that expression in English won't have much meaning. So the meaning is everything the way we experience it as an experiencer that has an illusory nature and seems to be in any way physical. Now, when we use it in the uh, and clear light mind here really is being used for the ultimate nature of reality. 
Mother Clear Light Mind. So often we say that the, and like Sankapa, for instance, in, in his commentary to Six Yogas and Naropa, and most other commentators to Six Yogas and Naropa often say, Tumo is the foundation. In other words, doing the energy practices with drops and uh, channels and so forth, the, the chakra nadi bindu, that this is the uh, this is the foundation of the practice, but the actual practice, the real practice, bringing accomplishment, is the illusory body clear like yogas. That's the same in uh, sutra Buddhism, and that everything, whatever practice we do, it should transform the illusory nature of reality. In other words, our conventional or relative life. If you Notice impermanence, just noticing that all things are impermanent. It should lessen your attachment to people and things and give you a deeper sense of how you're kind of on your own up there, <laughs> alone with others. You practice love and compassion. It should give you a warmer, better feeling with others and a more, more kind feeling and a more joyful feeling with others. You notice how all things are not what they seem. It should increase uh, the sort of freedom within which your whole field of experience arises. Increase your power of meditation. It should influence things on both levels. So that's there. So in the highest yoga tantra, we say the more you can understand the illusory nature, the more you understand clear light nature. But as the real practice, the, the idea here is that, uh, and, and we covered this in earlier uh, podcasts, is that when we do uh, an ordinary experience, we experience things largely through what's known as lurapa in Tibetan, which is the coarse level of physicality. In other words, just the sensory powers is operated through the brain, which is largely being driven by the muscular and bone structure of the body supported by the psychoneuro system. So the Tantra takes the, pro, takes the attitude that the more subtle you make the physical energy, the more subtle becomes consciousness. So the point of bringing the drops into the central channel, as it's called, you somewhat sedate the activity of the senses and the whole way, course level of physicality, and you generate what's called the subtle body. You build the Vajra body and do your meditation on the basis of the subtle body. When that happens, then you have the more subtle consciousness arising from it. So the real practice becomes illusory body, in other words, generating an ever increasingly subtle physical base on which to perform those um, practices. And when you do that, the consciousness arising from it becomes increasingly subtle, so they themselves become accelerated and more powerful. Therefore, people like the previous Dalai Lama, 13th Dalai Lama, and his commentary to uh, Gyure Namshak, the uh, guide to the Buddhist Tantra, says one of the great four greatnesses of Tantra is that you perform it on the basis of a uh, deeply refined or subtle mind state generated by means of the so-called Luang Ngao and Semwen. I think you use these expressions in the first of your when you first introduced this podcast, body refinement or isolation, speech isolation, mind isolation. 
means as one makes the physical sources supporting consciousness more subtle, you could say sedating or putting to sleep the more coarse levels by means of meditation or by means of tantric yoga, then the subtle mind becomes more dominant, more dominant force. So the illusory body there, uh, often we speak of two levels, so qualified and unqualified. In other words, the term is used at the beginning the actual experience is not generated. But uh, if we can generate the actual experience of the central of the, the drops in the central channel and so forth, then we can give rise to the actual qualified uh, illusory body. There they speak of that as two, two levels, uh, unpurified and purified. Sometimes people translate just that as unpure and pure, but the meaning is unpurified and purified. The unpurified just really means that when the energies are in there, they support a much more subtle sense of consciousness. But the veil or the curtain of duality still obscures the, the power of the supported consciousness. So the expression used in Tantra is by bathing the impure illusory body again and again in clear, clear light of mind, the knots constricting the heart are, are untied. <laughs> that expression is put there in, the, I think it's a poem by the seventh Dalai Lama on the Chapra Sambara Tantra. And eventually in the innate clear light nature of mind, unobstructed, unobstructedly radiates forth. He uses that kind of language. So those two clear, illusory body clear like mind means experience, experimenting with the two levels of reality, physicality and uh, the radiant perceiver, the perceiver which is uh, radiantly experiencing a, phys a physical world, a world of self and other. And as that is refined, the non-duality of those two becoming increasingly obvious. In that same Tsongkhapa text, your translation states, the illusory body yogas involve three main practices. How to meditate on all appearances as illusory, how to meditate on dream illusions, and how to meditate on the illusory nature of the bardo experience. As you, you've talked there about the analysis of one's experience and of the eye in terms of emptiness. And as, as you pointed out, it's very similar to a, a sutrayana. Uh, vipassana, sort of madhyamaka, deconstructive sort of approach that one might take. And I'm wondering how different is the meditating on all appearances illusory part of the illusory body yogas from the sort of analysis one does in Sutriyana Vipassana, for instance? Well, you know, everything in Tantra is based on uh, some sort of maturity in the sutra practice. So often it's said that they are adornments or ornaments on the top of the roof of the building that was created through the sutra practices. So what we learned in Hinayana, say, through observing the nature of anatma, how our sense of self is a construct, becomes very important in the practice. Then from Mahayana, we change the emphasis in Vipassana from the sense of self to the sense of phenomena itself, how they the separateness between me and the apple that I'm looking at or uh, another person or the moon that 
how this sense of self itself, this sense of separateness itself is, um, is an illusory projection or an illusory creation. So in some ways that's all there. The main difference with Tantra is that on the generation stage, we emphasize a little bit more, we try to connect a little bit more with the already enlightenment states or already enlightenment qualities of body and mind. As Dalai Lama once put it recently in a, something I saw from him, <clears throat> we already have the three kayas of a Buddha. We have the clear light of the moment of sleep and the clear light of the moment of death, which is very similar to Dharmakaya. And we have the dream body, which is very similar to the Sambhogakaya uh, of a Buddha. And we have our ordinary body of five senses that walks around doing things in a world, a sense of an external world. And this is already very similar or parallel to Nirmanakaya. So we have a kind of a, a similitude of the three kayas of a Buddha within our our operating mechanism, if you will, at every moment of waking and sleeping consciousness. The main difference between Sutra and Tantra is that in Sutra, one doesn't put the emphasis on the three kayas and bringing those three kayas into the path. In other words, one looks at them more from a mundane, if you would, point of view or perspective, a viewing platform. Whereas in Tantra, highest yoga tantra in particular, the emphasis is always trying to maintain the sense of one's uh, viewing platform as sort of a penthouse window of Dharmakaya. And outside the clouds of Sambhogakaya float through the sky with the rainbows and the birds and all the higher beings. And down below, you've got the rats and the spiders and the snakes and the world of, you know, dogs like uh, bite fighting with one another and all of this, so that's Nirmanakaya. But whatever you perceive within all of those three, you try to come at it from Dharmakaya mind. You try to maintain the sort of spaciousness, the joy and the radiance and blissful expanse of Sambhogakaya and embrace whatever happens on that conventional level. In other words, down on the, with the spiders and the flies and the cats and the dogs all fighting with one another, and, and uh, which is kind of, I think, apropos here in this political season in the U.S. of A. <laughs> and in England with Brexit, we see a lot of that spider and fly and cats and dogs kind of mechanism out there. We try and get involved with that from the point of view of the theater of life, a kind of a life theater that we try to engage in in a joyful, playful way, uh, and at the same time, try to put whatever is our own spin on things, to blend that in with them in such a way as we think we're adding our two cents worth to that whole display. So it's not that we step out from it in that it's illusory, but rather we play, play with it without getting really overly prejudiced on this side or the other side, trying to see all sides in a kind of an open, joyful, playful way, and uh, spin things however we think is appropriate to our own particular visions. So I think uh, coming at it from Dharmakaya mind, I would say, would be the main, main point of difference between Sutra way and Tantra way. Also, in terms of 
when we talk about non-self in sutra, it's often noticing how the self is a construct and therefore has no solid ground. The sense of self is a construct, there's no solid ground. In Tantra, instead, we tend to just rest within the vast expanse of radiant, joyful alertness, radiant, joyful awareness without any pushing and pulling. As uh, Tulopa says in the six of his six pointers, uh, Rangshar Shakta, just resting awareness on whatever arises. And then we experience that in a joyful way from our perspective side. And anything we want to, any way we want to recycle it, we aggressively do so from our male side. Um, I think Tantra kind of looks at it a little bit like that. For that reason, in Tantra, often we see ourselves as male, female in sexual union. So when I'm walking around, it's just not me, Glenn Mullen, walking around by myself. I'm in union with my consort. In other words, always trying to honor my female side of appreciating and enjoying whatever it arises. Uh, for instance, I've got Peruvian friends in Atlanta who love to sit and watch Korean soap operas. Mostly I was talking to the husband this morning. He said, oh, yes, yes, uh, my wife likes to watch those. I have to sit and watch it with her. <laughs> That's our, we, we walk around, we try to, one should try to appreciate and enjoy whatever's happening from one's female side. And also to put whatever, to inject one's own play theatrically from one's male side, aggressively from one's male side. And I think that's a, a, a defining characteristic of tantric practice. Now back to your division of three, illusory body during the day, illusory body at night, and illusory body in Bardo. During the day, it's said to be, the Sankhapa then goes on as to all the commentaries from Gopa, Gampapa onward in all schools that practice six yogas, that um, the, during the day really means two things. One is when you sit on your meditation cushion, and it really means doing the energy practices, the tumo practices, getting the energies into the central channel, observing the energy transformations, and observing how they transform consciousness. So you could say that's the that's the illusory body practice as done on one's meditation cushion or one in one's meditation room. Then off the cushion as one goes around living one's uh, going through one's daily life. In your case, uh, a podcast uh, uh, celebrity <laughs> rating podcastism, <laughs> or in my case, a Buddhist speaker. Uh, celebrating Buddha speakerships, <laughs> or uh, your case as a great guitar player, celebrating guitar guitar expertise, and as my case, a kind of a uh, guitar thumper, celebrating my thump guitar thumping ship. ship. <laughs> so, during the during the meditation session, doing it on one's meditation cushion as a tumo practice or a whatever level of tumo practice one is a however high one is able to take that, you could say. Between sessions, going around doing whatever it is. If one's a taxi driver or a, for instance, one of my uh, one of my students in uh, the Midwest is a 
is a, she specializes in taking care of people's homes. And another student of mine that cares for the elderly. And I know people who work as doctors and dentists and psychologists and others who are taxi drivers. Whatever it is one does, seeing that as an expression of one's enlightenment nature, being joyful and uh, playful throughout it, but seeing all things as in the nature of illusory appearance, celebrating the illusory appearance. So then Marfa gives sort of 12 examples of how we should do that, like a mirage and like an hallucination and so on and so forth. And each of these having a slightly different definition. In other words, a slightly different way of processing that theater. Then at night, it's uh, that it becomes the dream body, dream body yoga, sleep and dream yoga. So it, actually, the illusory body is uh, the, the the sleep body or the sleep in the dream. I should say, the dream environment is the illusory body practice at night. But to succeed at that, one must be able to hold a little bit the clear light of the moment before going to sleep in order to maintain wakefulness during the dream. That's often often said there. So the illusory body at night becomes dream yoga and the clear light yoga at night becomes watching the dissolution of the energies as one goes to sleep and when the clear light of the moment before slipping out of this body into dream body retaining that as long as possible. And then down to your third point, which is illusory body of the bardo, means during one's day through success in dream yoga, being able to do that practice at the time of death. So as you die, you watch the energies dissolve and it gets down to the clear light of the moment of death, holding that as long as possible. And if you have not achieved enlightenment in this lifetime, then entering the bardo with the strong intent to blend the clear light of moment of death with dharmakaya, when the bardo experience arises, transforming that into sambhogakaya, just as you had done in your dream yoga practice during the daytime, during your lifetime. So to circle back on a couple of those points, you mentioned there the yabyom and the deity yoga aspect. Uh, which you described in the first interview as taking appearances as a tantric theater, taking life as a tantric theater. And there seems to be a sense in which the flavor of the yidam somewhat percolates up from the formal practice into, if you want, the, the informal day-to-day -day life orientation. Uh, so as a consequence of the formal practice, repetition and so on, things start to flavor with that. But does one also maintain or... Uh, keep one eye on the um, visualization of oneself in the, say, Haruga and consort form? And if so, how does one walk around in such a way? When, when one sat down, whether it's on the meditation cushion or in a cafe, in a certain sense, that's a, it's a, that's a natural self-image self to be uh, you know, visualized. That's a natural visualization. But when one's walking around, it doesn't seem like a very practical means of ambulation a little awkward in crowded elevators for instance yeah and i'm not trying to be funny you know necessarily i don't know about that you are there is a sense of humor in there <laughs> yeah but i'm not trying to be disrespectful is what i'm trying to say i'm not poking fun in that sense i'm saying well how does one do that correct correct uh 
I think uh, one kind of relaxes the yabyum sense in particular times. Uh, like, for instance, in Yamantaka, one often puts the consort above one's head as sort of one is carrying one's consort, one's female ancestry, you could say, uh, as a crown ornament on one's head and seeing oneself as the male side and the crown ornament as embodying the female side. Or in many cases, one can just see oneself as solitary deity. For instance, uh, Chakra Samvara Tantra practitioners, because it's a female Tantra, will just often see themselves as Vajra Yogini, just the female, not the male. Yamataka, Guya Samaja, both of those are male Tantras, so one will tend to see oneself as male with a female sort of as crown ornament. So that's one kind of option there. Now, another aspect is many people who practice highest yoga tantra and also practice Kriya Tantra. So Shenrazi or Tara or something like that. So often between meditation sessions at the end, they'll come out of, say, their Chakra Samvara or Hevajra or Yamataka practice, Palachakra practice, and they'll do their Tara Sadhana. And for the rest of the, until the next meditation session, they'll be just Tara walking around as, as a, just a solitary female bodhisattva figure, you could say, or Shenrazi, a simple Shenrazi, two-armed or four-armed, something like that. Even if you're like thousand-armed Shenrazi, seeing yourself as walking around with a thousand arms and a thousand eyes is a little bit awkward. <laughs> so often between sessions, it's simplified. The main aspect of Tantra between sessions is the practice of seeing your body as pure energy of five radiances. And so uh, it's quite okay just to have a sense of your body as kind of a holographic image having zero gravity. The flesh and blood are basically just sort of radiant appearances uh, in the sense that the, they're just the electric energy shining with great radiance of a hundred thousand suns. And the seven Dalam again mentions this, uses this image in one of his Chakra Sambara poems written for uh, Chankya Rope Dorje, the great Mongolian master who was the uh, guru to the, uh, I guess it was the Qing emperors of China, the Manchu Mongol emperors of China, and uh, to teach that emperor always to see his body as radiant chakrasambara with the power and radiance of a hundred thousand suns. So I think just having a sense of our body as pure energy and pure radiance, I think that immediately uh, transforms our sense of being in this world. And the world itself, seeing it as a kind of a paradise or a pure land or a Buddha field, something like that. And all other beings as sort of emanations in a tantric theater. So the first Dalai Lama, for instance, was very strong on Yamataka practice. The second was very strong on Chakrasambara. But both of them emphasized strong Tara practice. And between meditation sessions would see themselves as a 16-year-old female bodhisattva. And that was very, very common in the Tibetan world. Many, <coughs> many um, Tibetan lamas do that, as well as, as Tibetan yogis, yoginis, and other meditation practitioners. As we mentioned, in, as I mentioned, and we discussed in a previous podcast, 
our male femaleness, femaleness is really a 50-50 equation in terms of our inheritance from our male and female ancestors and also in terms of our previous lives or more or less equally balanced male and female in many previous lives. And this, in this lifetime, we tend to be one or the other based on our karmic unfoldment, you could say, and our role in this particular lifetime. But our equal male femaleness is there as kind of an underlying element. So all Tibetan yogis and yoginis practicing Tantra do some female Tantra seeing themselves as female, some male Tantra seeing themselves as male, and don't think it at all as weird or kinky. <laughs> and uh, to see the Dalai Lama as a kind of a 16-year-old female bodhisattva, for him to see himself like that, for him isn't even slightly awkward. And uh, so many people do that, uh, do a, a Kriya Tantra form between meditation sessions rather than the highest yoga Tantra forms. That depends on the person and what they, what they feel is most appropriate to them. And something you've said in the past that sort of leads on from this theme, I think, about Tumo is one of the purposes of it or one of the effects of it is to balance the expressions of those 50-50 uh, male and female aspects within us through that inner yoga. Also, you've ascribed to, to those male and female aspects different sort of qualities, sort of the appreciative from the more feminine side, uh, the more dynamic or active in the more male side, for example. If one is working with Tumo and these energies are beginning to uh, rebalance or open up in different ways, is it possible that one may detect an imbalance uh, in that process where one can say to perhaps diagnosing, gosh, my f the female uh, aspect is coming out maybe in a new or way, slightly unbalancing uh, one state, or the male aspect is, and one finds oneself somewhat falling into the male uh, aspect somewhat a bit more and so on. Is that something that can happen in the process of balancing those internal energies? And if so, are there uh, remedies, or is it a case of continuing to practice and letting those things unfold and unfurl as they do? Well, yeah, as you know, in the sutra level of training, these two sides are called method and wisdom, upaya and pragna. Upaya being sort of the more male analytical approach or structured approach to things, and pragna being a kind of open-minded, intuitive approach. And everything we do during our life, we have to balance those two. We have to have a kind of an intuitive approach to things, but at the same time, driving a car, we need to know the rules of the road and the speed limits and <laughs> turn the wheel right and it goes right and so on and so forth. And so in those kind of sutra texts, it said if you don't keep the male and female, the upaya and pragna side well balanced, if the, the, the sort of analytical side or the structured side is too strong, you'll go in circles that way. <laughs> this side is too strong, you'll go in circles that way. You have to keep them in perfect balance. And the uh, Sankapa, in his commenta commentary book of Three Inspiration, Nietzsche Sumden, he gives that same uh, sort of idea or meta same metaphor for how we practice in Tantra. Uh, keeping the male-female in balance is uh, very important. Now, as for if it, things get a little bit out of balance, 
then uh, I think and probably your statement that just continue, continuing the practice is probably the best general approach that one uh, most problems will rectify themselves like a child growing going through growing pains if the child just keeps growing <laughs> it, they just go through those they're just phases you're going through and i think one does come through come to certain places where your male energies become a little too strong and you become a little too in your face <laughs> so to speak and Maybe your female energies become a little too strong at some point and you become a little bit overly uh, appreciative and overly uh, and, and overly passionate about the, the beauty and splendor of being and so on and so forth. And so one wants to have those in balance, but I think just by maintaining the practice is probably the best general rule. I think occasionally one will the male will get a little bit strong and one will find oneself becoming quite maybe even angersome and uh, uh, sort of overbearing, you could say, a little bit overly forceful and pushy in everything in one's life. But those energies just get a little bit stronger and one's male qualities become stronger. Whether you're a man or a woman, it's exactly the same issue. And I've seen when the female becomes stronger, if he's sort of overly appreciative, you could say, people will go through sort of crying phases. <laughs> like, for instance, if a man and a woman get angry and have an argument, it's very common for the man to jump up and down and start yelling and shaking his fists. And it's quite common for a woman to sort of just sit down and start crying when the, when the energies go very strong in that way. So whether you're a male or a female doing too much, if your male energy is dominated at a particular time, you may find yourself becoming a little bit angersome and a little bit overly pushy and, as I said earlier, in your face. And from the female side, you may find yourself like just feeling overwhelmed with the beauty and sort of, uh, just passionate excellence of things like that. Just very simple things. It can be very simple things. Just thinking about friends, thinking about family, thinking about your life in general, people can just start crying. And one of my tantric uh, students in Philadelphia mentioned that to me, that he went through about a six-month period when he would break into great uh, tears on many occasions during that six-month period. Let's move on and talk a little bit about dream yoga then, as we're bringing it uh, somewhat toward, to an end. Uh, it sounds like your personal practice that you described previously is the practice of the clear light of sleep. And there's also the other aspect of that, which is the, the dream yoga aspect here. And your translation of Tsong Kappa states, this involves four trainings, learning to retain conscious presence during dreams, controlling and increasing the content of dreams, overcoming fear in dreams, and training in the illusory nature of dreams, and meditating upon suchness, i.e. emptiness of dreams. And you've also written that although a small degree of dream yoga, and this is you writing now, although a small degree of dream yoga can be Im implemented on the basis of conscious resolution conjoined with conventional meditation techniques such as shamatha and vipassana, the degree of proficiency required in the six yogas emanates from the foundation, the inner heat doctrine and what the meditator has achieved of it. Can you talk a bit about the difference between, say, the kind of lucid dreaming training that's commonly available in both secular and Buddhist circles and what's done in the six yoga system? 
The main difference is that in six yogas, we have a system which has been in place from the time of the Buddha and has been practiced successfully from generation to generation as a training. And therefore, it has all the characteristics of that legacy with it. And so this becomes quite different than, say, exploratory or uh, sort of modern technolo technological approaches or methodological approaches, which are, you could say, more experimental. So that, that's the main difference, I think. Uh, I know, for instance, uh, some of the dream yoga studies or dream lucid dreaming studies being used, they use chemicals to induce dreams and so on. And uh, there's quite a few friends of mine have become, uh, have, have been participated in those studies. So the main difference is it's totally au naturel. And I would say a little bit more, perhaps you could say contemplative, in that these are being done sort of more slowly and gently over a long period of time by trainees in the system. So often in the West, these are like weekend workshops or one week workshops and things like this. Whereas in this tradition, there are much longer systems. Uh, you know, people do them for their lifetime <laughs> as part of a whole enlightenment program. So a lot of the lucid dreaming sides in the West, I think are a little bit more too more connected with insomnia and sort of people with sleep problems and has sort of seen more on that side of things. Whereas in the, this tradition is sort of a bigger picture of the path to enlightenment. So I think one uh, important difference between those systems and say six yogas of Naropa or six yogas of Naguma systems of dream yoga or dream yoga as taught in any of the tantric system, Buddhist tantric systems, is that here they're being done as part of a bigger training, in other words, sort of accomplishing enlightenment in this lifetime. So if it's uh, done as dream yoga, as, as part of the training for illusory body yoga during the night, as, as an extension of illusory body yoga during the day, and that together, combined with the clear light yogas, are considered to be the main methods of achieving enlightenment in one lifetime. So, you know, the emphasis is, is on achieving enlightenment or becoming a Buddha. And that's not often overtly stated like that in the sleep and dream clinics in universities and colleges or whatever. It has more to do, I think, with sublime sleeping and sort of knowing self and things like that. Yeah, that's one part. And the other part is dream yoga is sort of a preparation for proper or spiritual dying. If you don't achieve enlightenment before you die, how can you generate the ability to enter the bardo successfully? And so you could say dream yoga is, a, in a way, a testing ground for understanding the after-death state. It's said that the bardo body and the dream body, those two share the same nature, have many of the same qualities and the best way to be to understand the bardo uh, of after death or to understand after death is to understand the dream state. It's the perfect uh, ground on which to explore the after death 
experience. And however proficient you become in your dream yoga in this lifetime, then at the time of death, when you die, you will similarly be proficient in bardo yoga. So I would say the two main differences during this lifetime, and to it, the whole thing is in the bigger picture of achieving enlightenment or becoming a living Buddha, so to speak. And if you don't manage that in this lifetime, then at the time of death, uh, being able to die consciously, wisely, fully aware, and to enter the hereafter, the bardo state, with a strong experience in the principles. A little bit, you could say, like, a, I remember when the Israelis went to Libya to re release prisoners from some airplane that had been held hostage. <laughs> they built an exact replica of that landing ground in Israel with all the buildings and where everyone was being held and all that sort of stuff and did a hundred tests or 500 tests with every square meter of that property before they landed and went in for the rescue effort. So you could say in a way the dream state Dream yoga is a little bit like that kind of preparation for death. And so that that aspect is there right from the beginning. For instance, we began this podcast talking about taking the moment of clear light of death as Dharmakaya in the sadhana of Yamantaka Chakra Sambara, taking um, Bardo as Sambhogakaya and taking rebirth as Narmanakaya. So it sort of comes back to that our dream yoga is like bardo body training it training in dream yoga in this lifetime supports our daytime practice or more easily making great spiritual progress perhaps even enlightenment in this lifetime and if we don't succeed at that then at the time of death being able to die well die wisely die in full radiance of the unbounded spirit of the clear light mind Thank you, Glenn. And next time, I'd love to dive into the rich detail and nuance of the dream and sleep practices and also look at the Bardo Yogas. It would be my honor, my pleasure, and of course, always uh, great to see you either in person or in cyberspace. Glenn Mullen, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Steve. Bye-bye. Ciao. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.